בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוך השם, we have some new people, welcome. Also, always, I always forget this, but בעזרת השם, all of these שיעורים are on TorahAnytime.com, anybody that wants to watch the שיעורים, they're on TorahAnytime.com, or our website, בעזרת השם.org. Also, this שיעור will be תהילוי נשמת, אהרון בן ניר ומרדת מייזל. May his soul get very, very high in heaven and Be'ezrat Hashem give his parents that are dealing with a very difficult time right now a nachat to know that when someone comes to the world with difficulties, with all types of health issues, mental issues, all types of major tikkunim, major things that none of us, Shem Ha'achem, none of us could ever even imagine. And on top of that, leaves this world in an early age, it's actually a very good sign for his soul because Hashem only brings very special souls that have one tiny little tikkun. One tiny little tikkun to finish and they go to eternal Gan Eden. Eternal pleasant. Eternal, uh, you know, uh, extraordinary things. Things that we can't even imagine. I can't even describe with adjectives. Suddenly I forgot English. So, it's the problem is today that, uh, and we'll talk about Bezrat Hashem today, is that there's so much confusion about what the truth is that it's very easy to lose yourself. It's very easy to get lost and create your own version of the truth. It's very easy to just pick up your hands and say, you know what, the heck with all of it. I give up. I don't want this. I don't want this. This guy's a liar. This guy's a cheater. This guy don't understand him. This guy speaks too fast. This guy's a robot. This guy sounds good, but I just don't have the patience. And this other guy, I don't even want to try because I just, I've lost it. And it could be that last guy that could be the truth. But Hashem Yachem, one of the, uh, you know, one of the prophecies of what's going to happen at the end of times is that there's going to be a huge amount of kufrim, a huge amount of heretics, and there's actually some sages that say that a, a large part of the Erev Rav, Erev Rav is the people that are especially against Am Yisrael, but are Jews, are going to be wearing black and white and call themselves rabbis. So this is makes the situation even more difficult. Because, okay, so you got a rabbi so-and-so, and rabbi so-and-so, and rabbi so-and-so, and all three of them are saying, yeah, I tell the truth. Everybody says they're telling the truth. So how do we know? And Bezrat Hashem, we're in Pirkei uh, Avot, I think number 8, and we're going to have Mishnah 9 and Mishnah 10, that are Bezrat Hashem going to teach us some of these things. But before I start, I actually want to take some of your questions, because there's some new people in the crowd, and Bezrat Hashem, I think that the questions are very relevant uh, to everybody. Uh, because again, it's... Having alachot, having laws in Judaism is wonderful if you understand what you're doing. Now, there's two types of people. There's somebody that follows like a robot. And there's someone that follows because he knows that there's a meaning behind it. There's a truth behind it. He doesn't necessarily always understand the meaning. Because not necessarily everything we can understand. Because keep in mind that these are divine laws. There are benefits to them that we can understand, but we're not doing them because we understand them. 
So for example, there's a law of uh, the red cow. That Shlomo HaMelech, that was given special divine wisdom from Hashem, Hashem called him and said he's the wisest man that ever lived and ever will live. No one will ever be more like him except the Mashiach. Except the Mashiach, no one will ever be wiser than him. Meaning he knew everything. Every technology you could ever imagine. Anyone that reads the Midrashim, uh, that talk about how he built his chair, his throne, you'd swear that he had more technology than we have today. He had voice on command. When he would go and uh, take the first step on his throne, he would say a verse in a Torah, and all of a sudden this golden lion and golden eagle and a wolf would come and raise him all the way to his chair. And then he would say another verse, and then a golden, not like gold uh, uh, plated, a golden uh, um, dove would fly and put his throne on his head. Gold. It's flying in the air. You don't have technology like that today. Now, whether someone wants to believe it, doesn't want to believe it, the point is, they don't tell stories about me or you like that. So, the key is that we have huge amount of wisdom, and he himself says, the red cow? I don't understand. The mitzvah of the red cow, I don't understand. I still have to do it. So, it's not that we have to understand every single mitzvah, but Hashem had mercy on us. And He said, listen, most of the mitzvot, you'll understand the benefit. And it's important to understand the benefit because the more you start understanding the benefit, especially in the beginning, the more you understand the benefits in the beginning, the more you start doing them. You, you connect to them, so you want to do them. And then you start doing them, and then you see the real benefit. And the real benefit you didn't even think about. The real benefit is beyond you. The real benefit is divine. You, cannot, you can't even think about the real benefit. When you first start thinking about Shabbat, it's like, oh, you know, Shabbat is, uh, okay, it's a vacation once a week. I eat some food. Vacation. It's great. Once you actually connect to Shabbat, you learn on Shabbat, you hang out with the family on Shabbat, and you really connect to Shabbat, the vacation part, that's like the small part. It's like the small benefit. The feeling of Shabbat is as amazing as it can be, where it gets to a point where the whole week you're waiting for Shabbat. You're suffering the whole week just to wait for Shabbat. So again, the benefit you think in the beginning, it's nice. But the real benefit you get to once you actually start doing it. But Hashem had, again, like I said, Hashem had mercy on us where He tells us, listen, there are certain benefits you're going to be able to understand, but eventually you're going to get to a point where you're going to connect to them and you're going to do them and then eventually build enough trust in a divine wisdom in Hashem Himself and in His Torah that you're going to start doing things even if you don't understand them. As long as it's written, as long as it's not some Baba telling you, listen, you have to walk up the stairs six times, down the stairs three times, twiddle a little right, twiddle a little left, put a red string on your head, and uh, give me some stakai, and you're going to have a kid next year. You know, and all this crazy stuff. As long as it's written, you have a source, you have a book, you have a sage, you have Torah, you have a verse in the Torah, you have something that says it, okay, fine. But the people that make up all these extra stringencies are mamash destroying the religion and they're destroying people's lives because people get so confused and so overwhelmed with this nonsense that the religion looks like a cult. It looks like we well, was made in India. You know, it's like every day there's a new minag, every day there's a new string. First of all, by the way, anyone that has these red strings, they're not allowed. It's not only that it's not a mitzvah, it's not allowed. It's actually a ma'aseh goim. It's something that the, it's written in the Gemara, that the Goim used to use the red strings for idol worship. So this is, this is how far we are from the truth. 
if people go to, I don't know, different places in Israel, to the, uh, to the kvarim, to the graves, and they give tzedakah $10, $50, $100 to this guy sells you a, a string doesn't even cost a penny. Think you do mitzvah. Look, and the guy wears it all year. No, no, I didn't, I didn't take it off since I went to Jerusalem two years ago. Take a shower with it and everything. It's like, oh, you realize every single second you have it, it's a sin? The rasha that sold it to you, he's just, doing, he's just making money. He doesn't care about the truth. He doesn't care about God. He has a beard. Osama bin Laden also had a beard. It doesn't mean anything. Beard is free. Well, he puts a keep on, so what? He puts a keep on. So that's why you have to you have to look into it. You have to take the initiative and look for sources. Don't just start doing things for no reason. Don't be a robot. And that's one of the things that we have to understand. So as far as some of the mitzvot, again, there are plenty of benefits for it, and I'll take a question in a second. Um, but also know that the real reason, you should know this, it's important that you know this, the real reason, for all of the mitzvot, not one, not two, not three, all of them, of why we do them, is because Hashem said so. That's the reason. That's the, really the only reason. The other things are a benefit. It's like, you eat a sandwich because you need to survive. Whether it's tasty or not, whether it has a tomato in it, or a cucumber, or not, it doesn't make a difference, because if you were in a desert, you haven't eaten in a, in a few days, you're not going to ask if it has cucumbers or not. Same thing with our mitzvot. Our neshama, every time our neshama exists without making a mitzvah, it's suffering. Because a mitzvah is food for the soul. But the soul needs to constantly eat. So, it doesn't really matter why you're doing the mitzvot. Hashem said so because that's the only way you're going to survive. Now, if you ignore your neshama for an extended period of time, little by little it dies. And then it starts, it starts becoming very difficult for you to accept the truth even when you have it. And just like the Rambam says in Shmona Prakim, in the uh, book we talked about, I think, last week or two weeks ago, where he says when uh, someone is sick physically, the things that usually taste good to normal people, whether it's sugar or something sweet or something like that, don't taste good to them. All of a sudden, they like something salty. All of a sudden, they like the opposite. All of a sudden, the medicine tastes good to them. When they're healthy, the medicine is disgusting. Which is, by the way, as a side note, it's amazing to me. With all the technology we have today, we still can't figure out medicine that tastes good. <laughs> you can't put some sugar in the uh, NyQuil. <laughs> so anyway, but on the other hand, when we're healthy, we know what to taste. Our taste buds know which one's right, which one's left. He says the same thing with a sick soul. A sick soul that's so far away from Hashem, that hasn't done a mitzvah and Hashem knows who long, how long. Doesn't know what Shabbat is, doesn't know what kosher is, you know, has no clue. You start telling listen, by the way, this Mishnah says this, this, and this. Like, even if it makes all the sense in the world, even if it's, that's the one thing you need to hear, it's hard for you to get it. Why? Because your neshama is so sick that it's taking the sweetness as bitterness. And the bitterness all of a sudden becomes uh, sweet, meaning the sins, going to the club, eating not kosher, you know, uh, intermarriage, all types of things, becomes, that becomes the sweet stuff. No, no, let me sin today, because maybe we're going to die tomorrow. Live for the day. It says it in the Torah, it's a verse in the Torah, it says, let us sin today, because you know, maybe tomorrow we're going to die. That's the mentality we still have 3,300 years later. 
He was, oh, let me go to the club. Let me go to the, uh, play some cards. Let me go play this. Let me do this. Let me bet the house. Let me do all these things. One more shot. Put it all in black. Because who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. You only live once, they say. You only live once. They make it sound like even exciting. Problem is that as soon as that bet's over and you lost the house, you cry. Why? Because you realize you're not only going to live tomorrow also. So, and you have bills tomorrow. You just, you just use the money to pay the bills for the gambling. So, it's important for us to understand the Torah is sweet. The fact that you don't taste it, it's not a deficiency in the Torah. It's a deficiency in us. So, the best favor you can do for yourself or for anyone that's rejecting the Torah you're trying to teach them, is keep going. Don't give up. A little bit more. Another five minutes. Another ten minutes. Another day, another week. I promise you it's going to become so sweet, you're going to become addicted to it. How do I know? I did it. I was the most skeptical person you can find. It took nine months worth of proofs. You guys are smart. Four, four hours worth of proofs already. You're Shomer Shabbat, Shomer Mitzvot, Tzadikim. Me, nine months. Nine months worth of proofs. Nine months of conversation, seven hours. It's not even a matter of convincing me. Nine, nine hours until two years. Two years. Yeah. Okay, so he's, I found somebody like me. But makes me feel better. He probably took only two days. He just makes me feel better. But listen, it's a, uh, you make so many sins, it's, it's very hard to see the truth. So go ahead, ask me some questions. You had about uh, milk and meat, right? Something like that. So, so I, you know, I, I kind of built up my own sort of version of, of kosher. Mm-hmm. Right? So I, I went from eating whatever I wanted. You know, my mother brought me up to be... She was brought up Orthodox. She brought us up a very kosher home. Mm-hmm. Uh, separate dishes. No unkosher food in the house. Okay. Uh, so naturally, I rebelled. Okay. And so I ate whatever I wanted. And I guess about five or six years ago, uh, there was sort of a moment where I, I had been going through some change uh, and decided that to show my gratitude to God, I, w- I would start to keep kosher. Okay. On... And I guess in a very, well, my way. Can, 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 sure. Meaning I won't eat pig, I won't eat shellfish, I won't eat fish that don't have fins and scales, I won't eat any carnivores, I won't eat, you know, red meat and dairy. I did not mix uh, any sort of poultry and dairy for probably about three to four of those years. Okay. And then I, I guess I got to the point where I was thinking to myself, you know, the more I focused on, you don't boil a cow in the mother's milk. Right the more I kept questioning, well, why poultry, why poultry, right? And, and I did a little research, or, and what I found was there was something about a rabbi um, that decided just to be safe, right? If the food is fried, you're not sure if it's red meat or poultry, just mm-hmm. to be safe, we'll just throw that in as not kosher. Right. And to me, I found that confusing, so I decided to start eating poultry and dairy. Okay, okay, thank you for telling me the truth, and we'll learn what? Have a seat, have a seat. Um... Okay, so, on the basics of things, as far as poultry not being meat, well, obviously you're right. There's no, there's no proof here. Uh, poultry is not meat. Poultry is poultry. Chicken is, chicken is, uh, is not meat. And then the basics of a rabbi saying uh, that uh, we're not allowed to eat it just for the sake of protection, on the basic surface of things, you're right also. Where you're not right is that it's not just some rabbi. Now, there's a lecture that I did in Aventura. It's online. It's called uh, Torah, Science, and Ancient Wisdom. And it, uh, it talks about the 
extraordinary wisdom and divine knowledge that these rabbis had. Um, now, I know when I first started doing tshuva and someone would tell me a mystical story, I didn't like it. I didn't believe it. I didn't like it. Some people like it. Like uh, Sunny, which couldn't make it today, but Hashem, his sister had a, uh, had a uh, child today, so he has an excuse. Um, but uh, he likes mystical stuff. I personally didn't like mystical stuff. But to give you an understanding, uh, short of who these rabbis were, um, anyone that's mentioned as a Gemara, we have two parts of the Torah. We have the written Torah, which is the five books of Moses, and in essence the Tanakh, which is 24 books, but the core part of the written Torah is the five books of Moses. And then we have the oral Torah. The oral Torah pretty much explains everything that's in the written Torah. We can't understand the written Torah without the oral Torah. Even though the Christians like the oral Torah and they call that the truth, and they say that the oral Torah is a lie, it's a very ignorant statement because you wouldn't understand one sentence in the, oral, in the written Torah without the oral Torah. So to give you an example of why. Now the oral Torah has several parts. It has a Mishnah, it has Gemara, it has a uh, Keter, it has the Zohar, it has Shuchan Aruch, it has several different parts to it. Now, one of the critical parts is a uh, part that gives us the, it's called the Keter, or the Codex in English. Um that gives us the Nikud, the dots. You remember the dots you see in the dots in, the, you know, in your Chumash or your Sidur, you see the little dots everywhere next to the letters. Not like English where there's no dots. There's just, you know, you see a basic uh, a period here or commas here and there in English. But in Hebrew you see that there's dots in every single letter. Now, unlike English that has a vowel system, which is the foundation of the language, meaning that every single word must have at least one of these vowels, A, E, I, or U, and sometimes Y. So there's a handful of letters that must be in every single word, or else the word would not exist. That's a foundation. It's just like a building must have a foundation. Every word in the English language must have a foundation. Now in Hebrew, it's the same thing. It also has vowels. But the difference is our vowels in Hebrew are not letters. Our vowels are dots. Which means that without the dots, we wouldn't know what it says. So for example, if I wanted to say Moses without the vowels, so for argument's sake, I'll I'll just do it in English. So if I took out the vowels out of Moses in English, what would I have? I would have the M, O I can't use because it's a vowel. Mm -hmm. I have the S, and then E I can't use either, because that's a vowel. And then I have another S. So now Moses becomes Miss. So imagine a whole sentence worth of can't make one word, let alone a whole sentence. So the oral Torah is a critical part of the Torah where without it, there is no Torah. So anyone that says, listen, we like the written Torah, but we don't like the oral Torah is purely ignorant because again, one cannot be without the other. Now once you've accepted and you realize, oh wow, obviously this is... Factual. Obviously, this is not something you can make up. This is, you know, you could find this out. You could Google it. You could do whatever you want. This is not like something I created. I'm not uh, uh, brilliant in any way. Uh, but um, once you see, okay, so obviously this is true. So now you have a difficulty. The difficulty here is that once you know that the oral Torah is real, 
you also know that you're not smart enough to pick which one is real and which one's not. Meaning you can't pick, okay, listen, the Codex for sure is real. But the Gemara, not so much. Because you already see that there's such divine wisdom in here that it's a critical part. You're not at a point where you realize, okay, this one is valid and this one's not valid. But Hashem had, again, mercy on us again to make sure that we have enough evidence in every part of the oral Torah to know that it's divine. So, for example, the oral Torah, like, for example, the Gemara, the Gemara has scientific knowledge that we would not have if it wasn't divine. Meaning, there's information in the, uh, in the Gemara that no human could have gotten. So, for example, in the tractate of uh, Brachot, page 32b, Hashem tells us the exact number of stars in the universe. 1064340 and then 12 zeros after it. He gives us an exact calculation. I don't know how to say the number. It's a very large number, approximately 10 to the 18th power. And this is, again, written nearly 2,000 years ago. In those days, if you look at history, we didn't even have a telescope. Galileo Galilei came out with a telescope approximately 400 years ago. So at the time of this Gemara was written, we only thought that the number of stars in the universe were just what we saw. You could see, I don't know, 1,000 stars, 5,000 stars, let's say. Okay, so there's 5,000 stars, not this crazy number. Even today, you don't use such numbers like this. It's longer than a phone number. So when we said this number, the Goim and even the uh, people that didn't want to believe, they laughed at us like, you guys are a psychopath. There's something wrong with your Torah. What number is this? They didn't know what telephones were, so they can't say it was a telephone number. But now you fast forward to the 1600s. Galileo Galilei comes out with a telescope, which he actually stole the design from somebody else. But nonetheless, he says, no, we're all wrong. It's not a few thousand stars. It's a few million. Okay, a few million is nice. Thank you very much. But it's still very, very far away from this 10 to the 18th power. You fast forward another... 400 years, 1994, NASA connects a uh, supercomputer to the best telescope they have, and they get to an estimate, an exact number, 10 to the 21st power. So now we're close. But then you, technology advances, especially in the last 15 to 20 years. In 2004, a university in Australia came up with a number of 10 to the 18th power. So slowly but surely, science is catching up to the Torah, not Torahs catching up to science. So this is knowledge, and there's no way a human being could have figured it out. You couldn't, can't see those, those stars. And the Gemara and the oral Torah in general is full of it. I did a whole lecture about it. There's actually a CD that I'll give you. It's called Torah and Science by Rabbi Mizrahi. It's four hours worth of proofs. There's also a book I'll give you, Be'ezat Hashem, called Science Comes of Age by Rabbi Zemir Cohen. It's also full of Torah proofs showing you the number one most important part of your journey, of everyone's journey at all times, whether you're born religious, you're not religious, you're atheist, you're somewhat religious, you're halfway, whatever you are. Number one most important thing to know, number one, God is real. First thing. Two, if God is real, obviously he must be smarter than his creation. The creator must be smarter than his creation. So if his creation knows and has intellect to know that they must have instructions for anything that they create in order for anyone to use it, 
then the creator must know this also. Meaning, if I, if you never saw a phone, and I just gave you this little box for the first time in your life, you would think maybe it's a cup holder, maybe it's a weapon, I could throw it at Nirel over there for being late. Maybe it's a door stopper to keep the, uh, you know, to keep uh, the door open. Who knows what it is? But I, obviously, I want you to know what it is. So I made instructions. I gave instructions. So if the creation knows enough to have instructions, the creator also knows enough that there has to be instructions. So the second point is to know that the Torah is that instruction set. It's very easy to prove that the Quran and the New Testament are not the instruction set because they have mistakes in every single page. Every single page of the Quran, every single page of the New Testament has a mistake that anyone with an IQ slightly above a monkey could figure out if they're looking. Now this does not is not an insult to Christians because there's many Christians that are wonderful people. It's that when you're a Christian, when you're brought up that way, when you're a Muslim and you're brought up that way, even when you're a Jew, you're brought up that way, naturally you build a bias towards what you were born with. So you're not looking for it. You're not looking. If you're a Christian, you're not looking for mistakes in the Bible. If you're, if you're a Muslim, you're not looking for mistakes in the Quran, naturally. If you're a Jew, you're also not looking for mistakes in the Torah. Unless you live in America, and then you always look for mistakes. No, but Baruch Hashem... Eventually look for the truth too. So, um, naturally you have a bias. So now once you take away that bias, once you've eliminated that bias, once you are looking to be objective, you start seeing, wait a minute, the Old Testament must agree with the New Testament in order for the New Testament to be real. Because the New Testament says that the Old Testament, the Torah, is real. So which means, and they're saying that the New Testament is the continuation. So if it's a continuation, that means they must agree. They must agree. Can't control. You know, the Old Testament could be right and the New Testament could be wrong, but it cannot be that the Old Testament, the Torah, is wrong and the New Testament right. That's, so that's just a uh, a fact. Now, it's called a postulate. So now, once you look at the New Testament, you see that there's clearly a number of mistakes that are unfixable. For example, in this week's parasha, in this week's parasha, there's plenty of mistakes that we can see. And as I always tell you guys, if you ever want to see the proof that God is real and you want to see prophecy come to life, you want answers to your life, look at the weekly parasha. So I didn't plan this, but Hashem came by Hashem right now. So one of the things is that in the, in the Old Testament, in this week's parasha, it says that Sarah died. Sarah, our matriarch, died. And one of the things that Avraham Avinu had to do is buy her a grave, a place to bury her. So he chose the Ma'arat HaMachpelah, the cave of Ma'achpelah. And it specifically tells you where it is. It's in Hebron. It's in Hebron. He tells you the address in the Torah. It's not like uh, some understanding or some secret. It says right here. V'tamat Sarah b'kiriyat arba i Hebron, b'eret Knan. Sarah died in Kiryat Arba, which is Hebron, the land of the land of Canaan. So, and then it says several other times that the Marat Machpelah, the uh, cave of Machpelah, here, right here in uh, verse uh, nineteen, chapter twenty-three, verse nineteen, 
says, ואחרי כן קבר אברהם את שרה אשתו אל מערת שדה המכפלה, על פני ממרא אי חברון בארץ כנען. And afterwards, Avraham buried Sarai's wife in the cave of the field of Machpela, facing Mamre, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Canaan is later known as Israel. So here we have an exact address of Marat HaMachpela, Hebron. Good news is it still exists. You can go there. And you can see, same address, hasn't changed. In the New Testament, it says at Nablus. It's a completely different city. So what, God forgot? Wrong, there's a mistake in address. What happened? There's two Marat Machpela? No, there's only one. It still exists now. You can go check it. So, right there, mistake number one already shows you that the New Testament is not divine. There's a mistake in address. Hashem doesn't make mistake in address. He created the universe, He can figure out an address of a cave that He created. So, and this is just one of them. Another one is also uh, in this week's parasha as well. For many, many years, for 2,000 years, the Christians were arguing with the Jews, which is insanity, about how to define the word Alma. Alma means young lady. Now, we've always said it means young lady, but the Christians have said that it means virgin. We told them it's virgin is Betula. Betula means virgin, Alma means young lady. The good news is the proof is also in this week's parasha. So here in chapter 24, verse uh, 15, Avram, uh, no, uh, yeah, verse, uh, I'm sorry, 16, So here it's talking about uh, Rebecca. It says, Now the maiden was very fair to look upon, a virgin who no man had known. What's a virgin? It says, Betula. Okay, so here we know the definition of Betula. Now, if Betula meant something else, it would say something else. If it, it's referring to something else, it would say something else. Now, here if we move, if we fast forward to chapter 24, verse 43, it says, So here it's saying, Behold, I am standing by the spring. This is Eliezer talking. Behold, I am standing by the spring of the water. Let it be that the young woman, which is Alma, who comes out to draw, and to whom I shall say, please give me some water, and so on. So if, he's referring to the same person both times. The first, first time I read it was actually what happened. The second time I read it is when he's telling people the story. So, now obviously, if virgin was the meaning of Alma, then it would be used both times. You wouldn't use Betula one time and Alma the other time. So again, this is a, uh, it's, it's actually a nonsensical type of argument because how are you going to tell Jews how to speak the Hebrew language? But nonetheless, this, this argument has been going on for 2,000 years and the Catholic Church only started conceding and saying, okay, yes, we realize this is all nonsense in the last 50 years, but there's still enough uh, so-called zealous Christians and missionaries and messianics that continue this argument trying to teach the Jews how to speak Hebrew. So nonetheless, you can see from those two proofs, there's already a problem with the book. With, a, uh, with the Quran, it's a very similar issue, just very quickly. Uh, one, of the, uh, you know, one of the stories that they talk about, or two stories they talk about in the Quran, is on one end they say that Haman, 
Haman, which is a historical figure you could track, it's, you know, lived a couple of thousand years ago, knew Pharaoh. The same Pharaoh that tortured us in Egypt 3,300 years ago. Only problem, it's nice, they're both evil, they're both equivalent to Hitler of their time. Problem is, they lived about 1,500 years different. How do they speak? They didn't have a time machine yet. They didn't have a time machine. No phone numbers yet. For sure no phone numbers. That we already we covered in the first five minutes of the year. So definitely no phone number. No text, nothing. No WhatsApp. No Facebook. Nothing. So how did Haman and, uh, and Paul speak? On another hand, they also say that Miriam, Miriam, the sister, the prophet, the Kedusha, the sister of Moshe Rabbeinu, was Jesus' mother. Now, nice, similar names, Miriam the prophet, Mary the prostitute, fine. But the problem is, it's 1,500 years difference. It's a 1,500 year difference. So, it's not, so obviously here you see that there's clearly a problem. Bad timing. So, you could identify that those books... Now, they can't do the same thing with our Torah. For two reasons. Number one, you can't find anything like that in the Torah. Uh, that doesn't have an explanation that you can clarify very easily. Uh, and number two, our Torah must be true in order for their book to be true. Meaning, it's their foundation. So they can't say, oh, no, no, your Torah is fake. Okay, so if my Torah is fake, yours is fake also. So it doesn't mean, no, there's no way for you to win. So now that we know, okay, the other books, are we saved ourselves time. You don't have to do research for the next few years on other religions. We already know, okay, this one has the most likelihood of chance of being real. Now, once you look at the Torah, which, again, I advise you to watch the uh, shiur and uh, about uh, the Torah and science, my shiur that I've made and, and, and plenty others that give you different proofs, you'll see that there's so many proofs in the written Torah that there's no way that this knowledge could have come from a human being. Yes, there's intellectual knowledge here, there's rational knowledge here, there's things you can figure out if you think about them, there's things that, you know, over experience you can figure out, but that's not even 1% of 1% of the Torah. The divine knowledge is overwhelming. The amount of prophecies, things that there's no way that a human being could have written that are in the Torah, once you learn them, will show you that this must be an instruction set from God. So once you see that God is real, step number one. Step number two, the instruction set cannot be anything else. It must be the Torah, which again, takes a little time, but it's not like, uh, it shouldn't take you nine months. I've saved you the work, it's taking a few hours. <laughs> At most. Um, Torah is the instruction set. Then we have to find out what it says. Once we know God wrote this, then we're okay, so what, is, what does it say? Now, God told us that we have to put a fence around a fence. Meaning that times are going to change. And there's going to be different inventions, different things that are going to happen that are going to be more difficult or easier for different generations. So for example, when we think about the generation of the uh, you know, Egyptian exile, you know, the exodus... We're thinking about how do these people that spoke to God worship an idol? Golden calf, you just spoke to God. You have seven clouds protecting you. You have a pillar of fire right behind you. 
You have food coming from Shemaim, from heaven, every two seconds. I mean, you worship an idol. I mean, even the idiot down the street is not worshiping an idol. You worship an idol, it doesn't make any sense. Now, once we read the details, we realize that it wasn't quite that simple. It wasn't a Chinatown type of idol. It's an idol that came, it seemed like it came by itself. It was through some type of uh, um, a Kedusha, it was a Mate, something that a Micha, uh, uh, one of the uh, wicked uh, souls of that generation, stole from Moses, threw it into the fire, and turned all the gold they had into instantly into a, uh, a bull, and the bull spoke. There's a lot more details I talk about during that parasha, but I'm trying to save time and get to the point. So, okay, once you see the, the bull spoke, and he says, I'm God, okay, it's a little easier to understand why some people worshipped it. But nonetheless, that was a difficulty they had. Today we have a different form of idol worship. We call it money. Every dollar bill has, in God we trust, most people think the dollar is God, that's why they work till 12 o'clock at night every day. So, and God we trust turned the dollar into God, unfortunately. False God. So, each generation is going to have its own difficulties. The Torah already knew this. So Hashem said you're going to have to have certain laws that apply to certain generations and then forever. Now, in the previous generations, it was very clear what the law was, what was right, what was wrong. As we deteriorated and got more and more distant from Mount Sinai, our intellect and our holiness deteriorated along with it. So now, someone that in the past was able to make certain um, parts of the cow kosher, they had certain wisdom that were new, that every part of the cow was, was able to be kosher. Today, we don't have that wisdom. Only certain parts of the cow are kosher. The certain parts, we just can't kosher them. They had that wisdom. Same thing with Identifying chicken, identifying uh, um, beef. In the past, you could tell certain things were very, very clear. Today, with all of the additives, with all of the flavors, with all of the looks, it's very difficult to tell until you actually until it's too late. So the rabbi said we have to put a fence around the fence. You know, I can't look like you all. You have a uh, you know a cup of milk and a chicken sandwich. One of the little kids. He's going to look at it and say, Abba, look, maybe they made a new law. You're allowed to eat steak and, uh, or burger and, uh, and, and milk at the same time. It create, It's not that you're sinning yourself. It's that you could lead other people to sin. And since Am Yisrael is all responsible for each other, we're all, responsible. we're all in the same boat. We can't say that, listen, we're all in the same boat, but you decide to make a hole in the boat. You may want a pool in your room and it's very, very nice for you, but we're all going to drown if you do it. So we're all responsible for each other, which means that we're responsible for how we act, and how we act is we have to think about how other people are going to view it. So if me eating a chicken sandwich would look like I may be eating meat, then it could create a problem. So the rabbis already foresaw this, and therefore they made a law, and once something becomes a law, it can't be changed. Even though right now, obviously, today's world is saying, listen, it's very easy for me to know a uh, steak and a uh, chicken from uh, I don't know, McDonald's or something. Yes, it is very easy to know, but in those days it wasn't, and therefore once it became law, it became law. Uh, same concept with, for example, you're not allowed to uh, eat blood. Torah specifically says in multiple places, you're not allowed to eat blood. But you are allowed, even though I don't think anyone actually does it, you are allowed to drink the blood of fish. 
Because a fish is completely kosher. It's not a, it, you don't slaughter fish; it just dies. Whereas an animal, a cow or a deer or a lamb or anything like that, you have to slaughter them in a specific way. So, and God specifically said you're not allowed to eat their blood because their blood is their soul. Whereas a fish, he didn't say that. So we're allowed to eat the whole fish, including the blood. But now, if you want to drink, if you have this uh, desire to drink fish blood, again, you have to you have to be concerned about what other people see. So what do you do? So if you want to have, let's say, a nice uh, um, cup of uh, cold uh, fish blood, you actually have to put the bones of the fish right next to the cup. So anyone that looks and sees, hey, that's blood, he knows exactly that it's not the blood of a cow or, or something that's not allowed, and it's blood that is allowed. So constantly showing that we care about the people around us and not selfish people. We're not, uh, you know, we're, you're not living on an island. So, in regards to the uh, chicken meat, that's in essence the reason. Um, and many of the laws are similar to it. But go ahead, next question. Hopefully the next one takes me less time. It, it should, I guess. Well, so with red meat, just out of curiosity from what you were saying, does that mean that, you know, if I cook a steak medium rare, it's mm-hmm. the blood, does that make it not kosher? No. Once, if it's a kosher piece of meat that you bought, <laughs> then by the time you get it to your house, everything is kosher. You could even uh, eat it raw because the blood, the real blood was already taken out at the butcher's place. What you're seeing is really more of sauce and water that just has color of uh, blood, but it's not real blood. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, if it's, yeah, if it's kosher, it's kosher. Huh? like they don't have it in Israel. We've got to do a second day. That's also in the oral Torah. And the reason why we did it back then is because we didn't know time like we know today. Today we have clocks, we have iPhones, we have uh, you know uh, atomic clocks. We know exactly the time it is everywhere on Earth. And so on. In those days, the way they were able to tell, tell the time is by the stars and the moon and the sun. So they didn't know exactly when Rosh Chodesh was. So they had to bring witnesses. They had to bring multiple witnesses. Now we knew the minimum amount of time. In the Gemara it says exactly the minimum amount of time it would take the, uh, the moon to rotate around the earth. Which is a six digit number. That only... In the last uh, 15 or 20 years, science caught up to. It's an exact number of how long it takes. 29 days, 0.59, and then four other digits after it. Uh, Rabban Gamaliel says it in the Gemara. It's also one of the many proofs that are in there. Uh, NASA spent uh, approximately $780 billion figuring out that same number. Real fact, real. So they really did. It took them like I don't know, hundred years, something like that, or seventy years, and eventually they figured out what we already have in the Gemara. Uh, nonetheless, a um, we needed witnesses. We knew the minimum amount of time, but we didn't know the maximum amount of time. Maximum amount of time is varied. It could be thirty days, could be thirty-one days, could be thirty days and a half, and so on. So we needed witnesses. Whoever saw the actual moon. So since we weren't 100% sure of exactly when they saw it, the difference between a, uh, uh, one day and another could be significant, meaning if it's Monday or Tuesday, it doesn't seem like it's significant. But if it's Yom Kippur, it's not Yom Kippur, it is significant. Because if you eat on Yom Kippur, it's karet, you have death penalty. If you fast on the wrong day, it's meaningless. You understand? So that's why it's a, uh, it was already became a, um, a law to add one day in the exile because we were further away from Israel. And that's where Israel is what determined 
everything else. If you're in the exile and you violate the second day, it's the same. It's 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 a violation. It's a violation. Yeah, it's it's not as significant as violating the first day, but it is a major violation of the sages, which to such an extent people think that if it's Torah, it's big sin. If it's rabbinical, it's not a big sin. That's wrong. If you violate Torah, then obviously it's big sin. If you violate the rabbinical, it's not good. But if you violate rabbinical on purpose, in an irregular, meaning something, you, you violate the Chazal, you violate the, the words of Chazal, the sages, on a regular basis, like pretty much it becomes part of your life. I don't accept. You see one of these people say, I don't accept the second day. I don't accept the uh, chicken and meat, chicken and uh, milk. I don't accept what they say. I'll accept what it says in the Torah, but whatever the sages say, I don't accept it. You are, it's such, a, it's such a bad sin that you are now excluded from Am Yisrael. You're no longer considered Jewish. Meaning it's worse than violating many of the things that are in the Torah. Because some of the, for example, if, you, if somebody, Chas Shalom, murders, okay, they get a death penalty. But they're still considered Jewish. But if someone says, listen, I don't want to keep any of what the, what the sages said, they're cut out of the out of the nation, so it's it's much much worse. So it's it's really a matter of knowledge. Go ahead. So could you almost argue that ignorance can save you from, I mean, blatant sinning? Uh, ignorance, if it's a uh, unintentional ignorance. There is a Mishnah in Perkei Avot. I tell you, and it says, if you sin. Out of ignorance, in general, let's say, for example, you're, just, you're studying Torah and you didn't get to it yet. You're studying, you're trying, but you didn't get to learning all of the halachot of Shabbat. You're studying, you're trying, you're learning this, you're learning that, but you're new, you're only a year into it, five years into it. It's a lot of learning. And you made a sin, that's shogeg. That's not an intentional sin. That's Hashem will take that into consideration. But... If your sin is based on just you not learning, you just don't feel like learning. You just don't feel like, I don't feel like learning about Shabbat. I don't feel like learning about uh, kosher. Then it's no longer considered accidental sin. It's considered on purpose. Why? Because you purposefully didn't learn. If you would have learned, you would have known. Ignorance is a choice. It's not a, uh, it's not something that a, you have no option. You have an option. Just like you spend X amount of time learning about your career, X amount of time deciding who your wife is going to be, X amount of time, you know, picking video games at Walmart, X amount of time doing everything that you do, you could spend the same amount of time or even half the amount of time to learn the truth and you say, hey, wait a minute, I can't eat milk or meat. You know, so if your learning is just because you didn't get to it, but you're learning, that's different. If your learning is, if your lack of learning and your lack of knowledge comes from a lack of learning that's purposeful, then it becomes a on-purpose sin, and that's a problem. So no one has a free. Uh, you can't beat the system. Can't beat the system. So anyone agnostic, anybody that's not fully committed, right, to Judaism, right, and the laws, then would be would be blatant. Yeah. So there is a uh, Gemara that talks about. Uh, this actually, this Mishnah also talks about it as well. Um, there's a concept called Tinok Shanishba. A Tinok Shanishba 
means like a, a baby that was lost. Like, I don't know, if somebody, a Jew was born in Siberia and he's surrounded by polar bears and, you know, or a Jew was born in the middle of Africa and, you know, he's a, uh, he can't, you know, there's no Judaism there. Or he was born in Russia and it's a communist country where if you kept Shabbat, they'd shoot you on the spot. So you pretty much, one generation, maybe you kept some things in hiding by the second or third generation, people got so scared they forgot Judaism already. So unless someone lived there their whole life, their whole life, not just part of their life, their whole life, they cannot be considered this lost baby, this Tinoch Shanishba. Now, there are many people, unfortunately, that did have some type of uh, ignorance throughout their life. Most people uh, today, 80% of Amisa doesn't keep Shabbat. It's not because they all hate God. It's because most of them are clueless. But they can't claim that they're all Tinoch Shanishba. Even though there are people that say that everyone's a Tinoch Shanishba, it's completely wrong, it's completely against the Torah. A Tinoch Shanishba is if you lived without knowledge that you're Jewish your whole life. Meaning, the minute you know that you're Jewish and that Judaism requires you to do stuff, you know that Shabbat exists, you know that kosher exists, you no longer qualify as Tinoch Shanishba. Meaning, okay, you lived in Russia. Gorbachev and all of his, you know, terrorist friends were, were your buddies. You know, they were beating you up with the KGB. Great. Unfortunately, it sucks. It's horrible. I understand. Okay, but you moved to America, right? You moved to Israel. You moved to, uh, I don't know, wherever you want to move to. And there's a Chabad next to your house. There's an Orthodox shul next to your house. There's internet. There's, you know, there's, a, there's Jews. There's people black and white. There's people that have yarmulkes. You see the Hanukkah. You see the menorah. Every, uh, you know, you go to the, to the party every year. So you know what Hanukkah is, right? Okay, you know you're Jewish. You're no longer that baby. So what's the problem? The problem is that so many, so many Jews are not following the law that certain sects of, the, of Judaism decide to make their own law and say, no, okay, they're excused. They're all these lost babies. They're all excused. And unfortunately, uh, it's a lie. Uh, there is no validity to it whatsoever. If you look at the Gemara, Masechet Sanhedrin, the source for where this is, tells you exactly that it's exactly the definition I just told you. And again, you must be under those extreme circumstances your whole life. So live in Siberia from the minute you're born to the minute you die. So meaning, even if you are 87 years old, you discover that you're Jewish, and you got, I don't know, a year left to, to, you have to try. You can't say, ah, you know what, I already wasted 87 years, Hashem will forgive me for the last year also. No, you're obligated to do it. You're obligated to try. Yes, He's not going to expect you to be Moshe Rabenu, because you only had one year of Judaism in your life, and he obviously put you in that situation to give you that test, but you're not excused. You're never excused. So, especially us, we're the generation of internet. We want to find out how to build a rocket ship. You just put a Google video, you find out in 15 minutes you can build a rocket ship. You just need the tools and the money. So you can't figure out who God is. You can't figure out how to keep Shabbat. You can't figure out kosher. You can figure it out. It's just a matter of desire. So, why do those fake rabbis, fake organizations, that are desecrating Hashem's name, giving people a lie, and telling them that they're all excused. Because 
if they tell you what I just said, the vast majority of people would stop coming to their shuls. Because most shuls and most places uh, you know, in America are not like New York where there's a shul in every single corner or like Israel where there's a shul in every corner you can walk to every shul. Most shuls, like for example, in where we live in, in Florida, you have to drive to shul in most cases. Unless you live inside a community, you have to drive to shul 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Everything is 20 minutes in Florida. It's the same concept in everywhere else. In Texas, it's, everything's a half hour. Which means that unless you live right next to the shul, you can't go to shul on Shabbat. So if the rabbi of the shul tells him, listen, by the way, according to the uh, Torah, you can't drive on Shabbat. Okay, so I'm not coming to the shul. So the rabbi's like, wait a minute, I'd rather him come, because then, if he doesn't come, he's not going to send the $500,000 he sends every year. Because he's not going to see me, he's going to forget about me, he's going to send it to some other reform shul. He's going to send it to other, some other shul that's closer to him. So I have to keep telling him that it's okay to drive on Shabbat or just not say anything and just let him sin for 25 years. And it's evil. And they're going to be punished for it. Are they going to be punished? The people that are letting other people sin according to the Gemara get a much bigger punishment than the ones that actually sin. But everybody, but everybody gets punished. There's No one's excused. But the ones that know for sure and don't say, according to Rabbi Yudah Nasi in the Gemara Sota, and also in Sanhedrin and also in Shabbat, uh, those people take on the, uh, a bigger part of the sin. It's three different sources that say that all the people that know the truth and don't tell people, they take a bigger part of the sin. As a matter of fact, in the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, page 54, it says that the um, reason why Hashem punished the uh, righteous, or the people that were supposed to be righteous, the rabbis, during a generation of the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash, He punished the Rabbis first. Now you would think it would be the opposite. At least the righteous punish later. Or don't punish them at all. They're righteous, no? They're rabbis. They have a beard, they have a hat. Beard can sweep the floor. They have nice jacket. What's going on? They, they, they read chumash. They read this. Punish them. Don't even punish them. Okay, the other people that drive on Shabbat, punish them. Makes sense, right? No, Shem says they punish them first. Why? Because they didn't rebuke the people. They didn't tell people stop driving on Shabbat. They didn't tell people, stop eating milk and meat. They didn't tell people, listen, you have to eat kosher all the time, including pizza. You know, And that's one of the things I didn't know also. When I first started doing tshuva, I, uh, you know, I kept kosher. I thought I kept kosher my whole life with a couple of breaks from time to time. And my exceptions was, I'm never going to eat meat. I'm never going to eat pig. I'm never going to eat milk and meat. Only thing I'm going to do, I'm going to eat you know, non-meat outside. I'll eat pizza. I'll eat salad, I'll eat pasta. No problem. But then once you actually start learning about kosher, you start learning about food, you start realizing that, wait a minute, there's three pizzerias, they all use the same ingredients, but all taste different. How's it possible? Johnny's pizza is cheese, tomatoes, and bread. Steve's pizza is cheese, tomato, and bread. And Luigi's pizza is uh, cheese, tomato, and bread. How is it three different tastes? Because the sauce, both used for the cheese and for the actual tomato sauce itself, is made with different types of meat. So it depends what type of meat you're making it with in order to make the flavor. So now when you eat pizza at Domino's, at Pizza Hut, at Luigi's, or any place that's not kosher, not only are you, not, uh, are you violating the dairy 
and meat, but you're actually eating them together. And without learning about this, you'd never know. You know. So if something doesn't have a kosher, I have a whole uh, list. My uh, my wife I, uh, made a list of different ingredients they uh, use in food uh, that even if you don't care for kosher, you still wouldn't want to eat them. And they're only found in food that's not kosher. Meaning that it's so easy to make food kosher today because the system is big, the kosher industry is huge, that if something doesn't have a kosher sign, there's a real reason for it. Like for example, there's a, uh, there was an orange juice named Sunny Delight that uh, for many, many years was not kosher and only in the last five or six years became kosher. Now people thought this is a scam of the rabbis. Why would orange juice not be kosher? What's wrong with orange juice? It comes from orange juice. Rabbis are just trying to milk the orange company. Right? Greedy. No. You'd find out that if you investigated that Sunny Delight wanted a special ingredient to make their orange juice extra yellow because it's more marketable when it's extra yellow. So that extra ingredient wasn't kosher. The reason why is because it was crushed beetles. Now, whether you like kosher or you don't like kosher, I still wouldn't want to eat beetles. And if you see this ingredient list that we have, it's all real. You can, it's also publicly available. You can see this stuff. You see some of these ingredients they use in food. It's for much disgusting. That even if you're not Jewish, you wouldn't want to eat non-kosher. And they don't write crushed beetles. Yeah, they don't write crushed beetles. They give you like formulas like oh. E320 or you know Red 14 or some you know different types of uh, code names that you know you have to be in the industry to know. So if it's not kosher, there's a reason for it. Um, now, in regards to uh, food, it's very very easy because um, you know what's kosher and what's not. But the Torah also says something very, very special about kosher. Where Hashem says, when you eat non-kosher food, you become your soul becomes impurified. Now, the sages say that the word nitmitim, which is the one that's used in this uh, in this verse, is spelled differently than it's spelled usually. It's missing a vowel, which could be read in a different way, which means netamtem. Netamtem means stupefied. Meaning that when someone, when a Jew is eating non-kosher food, his soul becomes spiritually stupid. They're not stupid like they can't build a building or a rocket ship, but it becomes very difficult and virtually impossible for them to learn Torah. Because their neshama has so many uh, peels, if you will, getting in the way that it's hard for them to accept it at face value. And you have to get rid of those peels and it becomes very, very difficult. And that's why you see sometimes people go to seminars, you know, and completely secular. And in many cases, they don't even go. Some of the people don't even go to the actual lectures. And this is proven method many, many times. Rabbi Mizrahi has told me about it several times. Uh, Rabbi Zamir Cohen has said it several times. Many people that have experience with seminars have said this several times. It's proof that usually they have these three or four day seminars. You know, where they have lecture after lecture after lecture of different Torah proofs and so on. And obviously it's in a hotel, it's in a nice hotel, there's kosher food. And the people that come to these lectures, sometimes some of them don't even go to the lectures, but yet at the end of the seminar, at the end of four days, they do tshuva anyway. They're excited about Torah, they want to learn, they want to go to the next seminar, they start doing tefillin, they start doing stuff. So they ask the rabbis, how do you explain this? 
Like because for the first time in their life, they actually ate kosher food for four days in a row. And the food had enough time to turn into blood, because all the food that you eat turns into blood. It becomes your soul. The food that you ate on the first day finally had enough time to turn into the blood that you're using. Finally, your, your neshama started becoming purified. So just the food that you're eating is going to affect your learning. And your mitzvahs are going to mitzvah are going to be a little easier to do. Uh, so now, all of what I'm telling you is not even a fraction of one percent of the knowledge that the worst sage had. Now, to such an extent that the Gemara says there's a, a conversation between Antonitus, which was the Roman emperor, and Rebbe. Rebbe was Rabbi Udanasi. Rebbe was the president of Israel, was also one of the most righteous people that ever lived. They were best friends. And um, they learned Torah together, and it says that Antonitus eventually converted. But nonetheless, Antonitus uh, had a uh, meeting with them. They would, they would study secretly. Because if everyone knew that uh, you know the Roman emperor is studying with Rabbi, they'd, they'd kill him. Because the Roman Empire was against Judaism. They weren't exactly tzaddikim. So he built a uh, tunnel under his castle to go directly to Rebbe's house. And every day he would take two guards with him. And he'd, when he'd get there, he'd kill one of the guards. I'm sorry, when he left, he'd kill one of the guards. And when he get there, he'd kill the other guard. Why? So there's no witnesses. He's the Roman. He's a Roman emperor. He's killing, he's killing them. He can do whatever he wants. He's a king. Makes his own rules. So to go learn talk, because he can't have witnesses. One of these uh, guards tells people, hey, listen, this uh, Caesar of ours is uh, learning Torah with the Jews. They're going to kill him. Why, why would he teach somebody that's killing people? Why would Rebbe teach him? He's teaching him because he wants to learn Torah. How he's, the fact that he's doing it, uh, the fact that he's killing people, it's not that he's killing people because he wants to kill them. He's killing people because you know that if he doesn't kill them, they'll end up killing him. So in essence, he's protecting his own, uh, his own uh, body. You're allowed to kill somebody if you know he's, he's going to kill you. If they knew that he's practicing Judaism, they'd kill him. So his life was in danger. Even though he's putting them in the situation where they... He's not putting them in the situation. He said they don't, they're, not, they're not obligated to be his guards. They choose to be his guards, and that's what their position is. Also, there's laws for... Goim and laws for kings are very, very different than the rest of the public. But nonetheless, every day he would go there and he would meet with Rebbe privately. And they would learn and so on. This happened for years. One day, when he arrived there, he, took, you know, he saw that Rebbe brought one of his students. And he said, listen, Rebbe, I told you not to bring any of your students. He's like, no, no, don't worry. He's, uh, he's more like an angel. He's not really a human being. He goes, oh, okay, so tell him to go tell my, uh, my guard to come inside. Now, so he says, okay. So he sends the student outside, and the student sees the guard's dead. Antonitus already killed him. And it says, only a fool brings bad news. He says, I can't give him, give him bad news. So he had the kedusha of bringing him back to, back from the dead. Brought him back to life. And he walks back in with him. Walks back in with him. And Antonitus is like, oh, 
I guess you are right that he is more like an angel, but I also know that even the least of your students can bring back the dead. And from that way, this is also Nikmara. That's the source that we find out that anyone that's named by name, like they actually mention the name of the person in the oral Torah, in the Gemara, in order to qualify, in order to qualify to be named by name, you have to be able to revive the dead. To that extent. Now there's many places in the Gemara where someone says something, but it just says someone. Someone said, a student of so-and-so said this. It doesn't say the person's name. Why? Because even though they were holy, even though they were righteous, even though they were wise, even though they were amazing, they didn't qualify because they weren't able to revive the dead. So now when we say this rabbi made this certain law about milk and meat, we start understanding with the combination of everything we just learned. It's not just some local rabbi. It's not me. You know, I, if I could eventually become one of their shoes, I already achieved something in my life. So, the more we learn about these sages, the more we understand that there's a different level of wisdom. Last but not least, uh, example, and then we'll go, go on to the Mishnah, because there's a lot of details in the Mishnah as well that's relevant to what we're saying. One of the most famous people of all time that's even recognized by the non-Jews is a uh, sage by the name of Rambam. Rambam is Mammonites. Uh, you have uh, a, uh, hospitals named after him, and he was a uh, philosopher, a scientist, astronomer, a, uh, a physician. Doctor. Uh, yeah, physician is a doctor. Um, he, was, he was a renaissance man. In addition to being a giant sage that pretty much all of the laws that we have today are based on his explanations. He took everything from the Gemara, that part of the oral Torah, and explained it in a simple way. And from there, the Shulchan Aruch, which is another uh, part of the oral Torah, simplified it even further. But anything, all of our laws in, in, in Judaism, in essence, the foundation of 90% of them are from him. So, one of the uh, recent Nobel Prize winners, that was Israeli, secular, atheist, believe in nothing, criticized, like, why, why did these Jews give so much respect to this Rambam? It's a big deal. What he makes some laws. So what? Okay, so he was a doctor. I, I'm a you know I'm a Nobel Prize winner. I want a Nobel Prize. I'm this. I'm that. What's the big deal? Why do they have a statue of Rambam in a, uh, in Washington? They don't have a statue of me. So is it because the Rambam's wisdom was as close to divine as you can be in his generation? And he said, "What do you mean?" He's like, "Just like the Torah, the Torah doesn't have any extra letters." Meaning that Hashem didn't just write information. If he wrote every single detail of everything that would have happened, the book would start here and end at the end of Mars. He didn't write every single detail of Ram woke up, he went to the bathroom, he said, didn't let you die. He didn't write every detail. He wrote specific things, and it was a very, very precise way to give you the most amount of information with the least amount of letters. To such an extent that you could actually find out everything that ever happened. Everywhere. Anywhere including this conversation and everything that will ever happen in these five books. I know it's hard to believe, but you'll learn about Torah codes in different parts of the Torah. You'll see eventually that you'll, uh, it's, you can see it. But nonetheless, um, the Rambam, when he wrote his laws, 
he wrote it in a similar fashion. Not God, obviously, but meaning that he minimized the amount of letters and the amount of words to give you the most amount of information in the least amount of, of uh, in the most uh, uh, precise way, but also at the same time it has to be understandable. So, Einstein once said that if you don't understand something uh, well enough to explain it to a four-year-old, then you don't understand it well enough. So, this Nobel Prize winner, which I don't remember his name, said, okay, what's the big deal? Give me an halacha and I'll write in less words. So, okay, pick any halacha you want. Pick any law, any Jewish law you want. The easiest one, the longest one, whatever you want. He picked the simplest one. He said, okay, write it, this law, study this law, and write it in the least amount of words. So he studied it, da, 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 da. after a little while, he wrote it, wrote the whole halakha in, uh, I think it was like 32 or 33 letters, 32 or 33 words. He said, oh, a little less, minimize it more. Same amount of information, but with less words. Worked on it a little harder, he got down to about 27, 27 words. So a little less. Worked on it a little harder. Months now. This is not like hours. Eventually, I believe he got down to about 21. Smoke was coming out of his head. He's like, oh, obviously I beat the Rambam, but I just want to know by how many. And then they look at the Rambam, and see it was seven words. And not only is it seven words, it's more clear than the 21 words. Meaning that we, our intellect, the smartest man on earth whether the religious, non-religious, scientists, whatever you want. Pick all the smartest people in the world. Are closer, if you actually start understanding the work of the Rambam, which is only 900 years ago, we're closer to the intellect of monkeys than we are to the Rambam. No, no, this is not, exactly, this is not an insult. This is a reality. We are closer to monkeys than we are to the Rambam. And the Rambam was just 900 years ago. And the Rambam wasn't able to revive the dead. Meaning he wasn't enough to be a student of Rabbi Akiva from 2,000 years ago. So when we say, oh, some rabbi that some Gemara said something I don't agree with, you know what you're dealing with here. And that's the beauty of the Torah, is that we all start ignorant, but then we start seeing, it's like, wow, this is delicious. This is amazing. I want to know more. Who's this Rebbe guy? Who's this Rambam? Who are these people? These people are like amazing. You start hearing their life stories, things that happened to them. You see that they went through similar issues like we have. Much more difficult in some cases, much easier in other cases. But nonetheless, their wisdom, their connection to Hashem is what got them to where they are. And when we learn today, and this, this, what we, where we have a series we started of called Pirkeavot, which is uh, in English translates to Ethics of Our Fathers. This is different wisdom, like one-liners or different uh, statements of wisdom that each one of the sages said during his time. Now, when you read each one of them, we've made about seven lectures about this, and in Bezat Hashem, it's going to be many more. Um, and uh, each one of the sentences, when you read it basically, you read it in plain meaning, it seems common sense. Once you delve into it and you start realizing what they actually meant, when you look at the commentary, it's a notion. So it would seem like, for example, 
So Mishnah today, Shimon ben Shatach, which is one of the sages, says, interrogate the witnesses extensively, yet be cautious with your words, lest they learn to lie. Now this is a lecture, this is a sentence you think, okay, maybe we could talk about five minutes. What's the big deal? We could talk about just this verse, just a few words here, for no less than a couple of weeks straight. That's how much information is in there. And it's not my talking ability. It's just a, it's, that's how much information is in there. So, now, Shimon was one of the giants of his generation. And he's telling us something that's connected to the previous Mishnah, which was read by Rabbi Yudah ben Tabai, who said, don't act like a lawyer. When you're serving as a judge, don't act like a lawyer. While the litigants stand before you, consider them both guilty, and why, you know, once they're dismissed, consider them both innocent once they've accepted the judgment. Now, in short, last week's Mishnah, which, we, which is the one I just mentioned, what Yudah said, when you're a judge, don't act like a lawyer, meaning a judge is looking for the truth. A lawyer is looking for an excuse. A lawyer is looking to find a way to prove his client innocent. He doesn't, it doesn't matter whether the client is guilty or not. That's why this Uma, which was the uh, right-hand uh, Satan for Hillary Clinton, um, you know, was very dangerous for her to go into government because she even publicized that in our days of being a lawyer, she, there was clear criminals that she defended, that even a blind person, she says, she says this publicly, a blind person would have known the guy is guilty. He's a murderer, but I still got him out. And she's proud of this. So the guy is roaming the street right now, he's going to murder more people, but she's proud of it because she's a good lawyer. So, in the Torah, you're not allowed to be a lawyer. You have to be a judge. Why? Because you have to be looking for the truth, not for excuses. Don't look for excuses. So, that's one. Second, while the litigants are before you, Consider them both as guilty, meaning if you have two people that are arguing the case, if you consider them both, oh no, they're both such nice people, I remember them from shul, they go to BRS, they go to Chabad house, even comes on time, this guy comes to the nets, it's Sadiqim, look how big his kippah is, the beard almost reaches the floor, if everybody's Sadiqim, you're not going to judge everyone, everyone is a Sadiq, you're not going to get to the truth. Everyone's a tzaddik, everyone's righteous, so how, how are you going to ask him, listen, by the way, did you cheat on your wife? You're a private investigator. By the way, listen, we're, we're seeing that there's a million dollars missing from our books. Did you steal it? If you're looking at him already, if you have a predisposition that he's righteous, you're not going to ask him a question like that, you're going to feel uncomfortable. But that means you're not going to find out who stole a million bucks from you. That means you're never going to find out if he cheated on his wife. That means you're not going to find out the truth. He said, if you're a judge, you must look at everyone as criminals. They're all guilty. Because it's the only way you're going to get to the truth. But once they've accepted the judgment, obviously somebody has to be guilty. One's innocent, one's guilty. But once they've both accepted it, the guilty party and the innocent party, the prosecutor and the defendant, the case is over. They both accepted your decision. They're both innocent. What does that mean? Means okay, don't hold it against them. He accepted. He said, "Listen, you stole a hundred. You have to pay back in Judaism. If you steal a hundred, you have to pay two hundred. You stole a hundred. 
he agrees to pay back 200, at that moment he's, okay, he's kosher. You can't hold back, you can't hold it against him that he stole 200 in the past. If he did tshuva, that's it. You're not allowed to remind him, hey, by the way, remember you were a thief? You're not allowed to remind somebody of their past sins. It's a sin. So if somebody used to be a Michalel Shabbat, if somebody used to eat non-kosher, if somebody used to go out with a non-Jew, once they did tshuva, you're not allowed to remind them of their past days, like some of my old friends say, hey, remember when we used to go to clubs together? They think it's cute. Which again, it's to their innocence. But in reality, you're not allowed to do it. I mention my past because for, it's for a purpose. It's to teach you what's possible. But to just remind somebody, hey, by the way, remember you were a thief? Remember you were a criminal? Remember you were, you know, your wife wanted to kill you? Remember all those things? No, you don't, don't remind him of any of those things. He doesn't want to remember them. That's actually the reason why Hashem gave us a uh, memory that ends at some point. You forget. It's mercy. If we remembered every single thing that we ever experienced, our life would be very difficult. And unfortunately, some people actually have that problem and they suffer. I remember a lot of things since I was about three years old. And it's not always the best. Not always the best. Uh, so, and some people are much, much worse than me. They literally remember every single detail. And that's pure suffering. Because again, I don't know, at some point you uh, uh, lost a pen. And when you were six years old, that pen was like your everything. Your transformer was everything. And you... Meaning that you're going to not only remember that you lost your transformer, you're going to remember the pain you had when you were six years old. You're 37. Get over it. But you can't if you actually have that memory. Understand? So losing, you know, forgetting things is actually a form of mercy. So nonetheless, the sages are telling us here that if someone, if the two people, the guilty and the innocent, accepted the judgment, they go back to square one. So now this Mishnah of this week, Shimon ben Shatach, the sage Shimon, the son of Shatach is telling us a continuation. He's saying, these witnesses that you can have in front of you, interrogate them extensively. What do you mean interrogate extensively? The Midrash suggests that the only way to get to the real truth is not only by interrogating, you know, by asking a lot of questions, but by also asking them in rapid fire. Where'd you go? What time? What color? What's the color next to you? Where'd you park? Constant questions. And actually, if you notice, some of the best uh, lawyers speak really, really fast, and it's intentional. And the reason why, if I asked you questions in slow, nice, civilized, you have time to think about it. And if you're a liar, if you're a con man, you have to think about excuses. You're going to think about, wait a minute, he's going to ask me this because he really wants to know this. But if I ask you constant questions, right, left, and I pretty much don't lead you on to anywhere. I ask you different questions. On one hand, I'm asking you what color it was. On another hand, I'm asking you who's your best friend. On one hand, I'm asking you what's your favorite dog. On another hand, I'm asking you how much money did you make last year. I'm all over the place. I'm really, I know where I'm going, but you don't know where I'm going. I'm going to get to the truth. Hmm? Immigration people. Immigration people. <laughs> yeah, immigration people and IRS. So, so, <laughs> so uh, he's saying you want to do it, do it with a uh, rapid fire. Now, after this, he's saying 
be cautious with your words though. Be cautious with your words lest they learn to learn from them to lie. Because don't just ask questions without thinking about them. Be prepared. Because they may use your information to lie. So I give you an example to show you how smart the Dayanim are, how smart the Jewish judges are. Baruch Hashem, I have some students that are uh, in the process of converting. And uh, next month we're going to be going, uh, finishing the conversion with a few students. And, you know, different people have to, you know, discern requirements and so on. So anyway, I had a conversation with the Bedin. And uh, I told him, listen, one of the uh, students has a uh, couple of kids and uh, you know the uh, and I, and I asked the, I did it in a question way where and uh, I I stated a fact in a question format, meaning I said uh, yeah and the kids are uh, they have to be less than twelve years old for girls and thirteen years old for boys in order to convert under the parents. So this to you sounds like yeah what's it's no big deal right it's, okay that's really what the alacha is the law is that if the children are going to convert under the parents and not independently. Then the uh, girl has to be under 12 years old and the boy has to be under 13 years old. The bar mitzvah, the bat mitzvah and the bar mitzvah. But if they're older than that, then they're considered adults. That means that they're going to have to take their own private test. You know, it's not like a written test, it's an oral test. And they have to dip in the mikveh separately and so on. So I asked the question, I knew this information already, that's why I stated it, but in essence I was confirming. And to me, it's like, doesn't mean anything. Listen, the girl has to be under 12 and the boy has to be under 13, and I didn't think much of it. And the dad says, how old are they? He didn't say yes, even though the answer is yes. He said, how old are they? Which when you don't, I didn't, you know, initially you don't really think much of that. But then you start realizing, wait a minute, he knows this Mishnah. He knows that if he says yes, that could lead me to say, yes, they are 12 years old. They are 13 years old. I could use his words to lie. But if he says, how old are they? And I say, oh, well, it's a quick question. She's nine or he's six. And I says, oh, then yes, it's 12 years old for the girl and 13 years old for the boy. And this is instinct. It's his instinct. So people don't understand to be a Dayan, to be a Jewish judge, it's not like a, uh, a secular judge. You go to school, you become a lawyer after, I don't know, eight years or ten years of school. You become a lawyer, you grease a few people, you uh, get to know a few other people, and eventually you become a judge. And you could be smart, you could be stupid, whatever. Long story short, it's all about who you know, really, more than it is about what you know. And Judaism doesn't work that way. It's only about what you know. And it's only if everyone agrees that you know it. You just thinking you know it is irrelevant. And it has to be mamash like instinct. Just like it's instinct for us to breathe, it's instinct for us for, to smell, it's instinct for us to, to move certain ways. For them, it's instinct to think that way. And it's amazing. And people don't really understand, oh, okay, big deal, he's a rabbi. No, he's a, not just a rabbi, he's a dayan. This is as close to we have as a sage as there is. And when someone's a dayan, it's a very big deal. So nonetheless, Shimon ben Shattach is teaching us here, make sure that when you tell people something, when, you're, when you have people that you're questioning, do it 
very carefully, choose your words very wisely because they can use your words against you. Now, why did Shimon ben Shatach, every one of these Mishnayot, every one of these sentences has a reason behind it. Why did he come up with this one? It actually happened because of his own personal tragedy. Now, Shimon ben Shatach was the Gdolado, he was the giant of his generation. And uh, it was decreed from heaven that uh, one of his students had a dream. He got a message from, uh, from heaven. It says in the Gemara, Mesechet Sanhedrin, that uh, it was Shimon ben Shatach's obligation to kill this group of witches. There was a group of witches. And according to the Torah, you're not allowed to do sorcery or witchcraft or black magic. Someone that does it, has uh, given their given up their right to live. Hashem, even though Hashem obviously created it, you're not allowed to use it because it's the different forms of idol worship and so on. It's a specific law in the Torah. A witchcraft doesn't even get a second chance. If she's she's a witch or he's a uh, sorcerer, they get killed right away. Now, apparently in those times, there was a uh, large amount of uh, witchcraft. And there was a group of about 80 witches that were causing terror and torturing everyone. And uh, he was charged with the, uh, you know, with the obligation to kill them. Now, obviously, you can't just go to these people that have magic and different powers and different things. But again, this is all mystical stuff to us because it's not natural in our world, but it's very much real. It's just, again, you have to... In time, you'll start seeing things in the world, or you'll start seeing things in a toy, you start seeing how it all adds up. But nonetheless, take the story at face value. And uh, he was obligated to kill them. Now, you can't just walk into a cave full of witches and say, hey, by the way, I want to kill all of you. You're all going to go to trial with me. We're going to prove you're all witches. And we're going to kill you. Come. <laughs> Come to the Shio Torah. You know, you're not so you have to. Come up with a plan. So he came up with a plan. He knew where the cave was. And he brought 80 of his students. And he told 80 of his students to put their uh, clothes in boxes or to, uh, to, that's protected from the rain and wear a, se- a separate set of clothes because it was raining. So they all came to this cave. And he said, you hide over here. Change your clothes. Change your clothes over here so you're all dry. But hide over here. And when I whistle... Run inside and pick up the first witch that you see off the off the ground. Dylan said, "Okay." So he came in by himself. All right, well, you listen. I came here. I know you know who I am. I came here to learn your magic. Came here to learn your tricks. I want to learn them. And uh, they show him some tricks of what they can do. And like, all right, well, since you want to learn, you know what we're doing. Like, what can you do? Obviously, if you value our tricks, you value our magic, our witchcraft, our so on, you must know something also. He's like, well, I can make magic where I could whistle and 80 men will show up and pick up every one of you. Huh? Oh, and they're all going to be dry. Even though it's raining outside, they're all going to be completely dry. You guys watched the show already? Just it's coming out right now. Many years ago. I said you'd have a time machine. So, so anyway, uh, they, uh, that's what he did. He whistled. All of a sudden, the 80 students came in. They picked him up off the ground. Now, why do you want them to pick him off the ground? Because uh, sorcery doesn't work when the, uh, 
uh, person that's generating, that's creating the sorcery or the magic is off the ground. So once they were off the ground, they weren't able to use their magic anymore. So they were all thrown on the horses, taken to the Bedin, and they were all killed. Now, their family members weren't exactly ecstatic about this. So they conjured up a plan to uh, falsely accuse Shimon's son for murder. And they came as witnesses. Now in Judaism, two witnesses are enough. Two witnesses says somebody did it, that's it. Unless somebody else comes and says, no, he didn't do it. Two witnesses are enough to kill somebody, to give them a death penalty. So they came, yeah, obviously you provide, the witnesses are the evidence in essence. What if they're lying? That's what he said, you have to... Um, interrogate them excessively, extensively. But nonetheless, the witches came and they accused them of killing. And it's a... Uh, he said... This is Maram, uh, page 44 in Sanhedrin. The rabbi told in Abereza, it once happened that a certain person was being escorted to his execution, this is Shimon ben Shatach's son, when the time came for him to confess his sins, he said, if I have truly committed this sin, obviously he didn't do anything, he said, if I truly committed this sin, for which I've been condemned, let my death not even atone for any of the sins that I made in my lifetime. Because part of your, part of your, uh, your suffering, in essence, helps you in life, because you made sins, so suffering, when we had a whole shiur about suffering, is of benefit. It's a called kapat avanot. It repents part of your repentance for sins. So, for example, when someone a uh, wants to take out a quarter out of their pocket, but instead they took out a dime, even though it's a small, minuscule amount of suffering, it is a form of suffering. So that little bit of suffering is instead of you suffering in ganom for I don't know a second. So Hashem gives you different forms of suffering in this world. So you don't have to suffer over there because over there it's much, much worse. Makes, you know, all of Auschwitz times a, a million is not even one minute in Gehenom. So, death is part of that suffering. Actually dying is a, is a form of suffering. But he's saying that if I actually committed this sin, let my death not even repent for any of my suffering. Let it be completely for waste. Like, it's not, it's not helping me in any way. If I'm really guilty of this murder, let it not help me. That's, that's how confident he is that he didn't do it. But if I have not committed this sin, let my death atone for all of my sins, and let the court of all of Israel be free of blame of my death, but the witnesses who conspired against me, let them never find forgiveness. He says, if I didn't commit it, but they're killing me anyway, then let it at least be worth something. On top of it, don't blame the uh, Jewish judges because they're just following the law. There's two witnesses saying that I, uh, I committed murder even though there's, nobody to, there's no way to prove them wrong. So the court has to follow it. So don't blame the judges. They're just following the law. They're righteous. They're following the Torah. But the witnesses, they're the liars. Let the, If I didn't commit this murder... Let their sin of lying about me never be forgiven. So this actually scared them. 
this scared the, uh, the, the witches, the families of the witches, and they changed their mind. But in Jewish law, you can't change your mind. Once you're a witness and you say, two witnesses say, you committed murder or you committed a certain sin, and they decide to change their mind, they're not, uh, they're not accepted. Only way that it's accepted is if a different witness comes and says they're wrong. Meaning that even though they changed their mind, they still had to kill him. What? And this is why Shimon ben Shatach said this Mishnah. He said, if we were to interrogate the witnesses more extensively, we would have arrived at the truth anyway. It's because we didn't, we didn't interrogate them extensively enough, and it's because we didn't watch our words with, they used our words against us. How is this done in day-to-day life? Now, obviously, we're not judges, we're not juries, and we're not witches. How is this going to help you in your day-to-day life? There's a few things that this is going to help you with. All the things that we learn, we try to apply it to day-to-day life. So now, where do you need to know all of these things? A few places that you need to know all these things are when you're trying to find a shiduch, trying to find a mate, conversion, work, and business, when you're rebuking your kids, or you have students. There's a handful of places this is helpful in. And there's plenty of other ones, if I can think about it. There's plenty of other ones. So I'll give you small examples of how. Now, in Shidduch, as I told you the example. If I tell you, listen, the law is A, B, C, and D. You're going to tell me, yeah, yeah, I match those things. I match. Whatever you just said, I match it. The law is that the girl has to be 12, the boy has to be 13. Yeah, yeah, they're 12 and 13. Prove me otherwise. Right? I'm going to say, yeah, I, I want to get in. I'm, if I'm a con man, if I'm a sneak, if I'm a thief, if I'm, if I'm a liar, then whatever you tell me, you're saying these are the requirements, I'm going to say, yes, I, I, I meet those requirements. You gave me a multiple choice, I picked the right answer. Now, Shimon ben Shatach is teaching us, he is, don't give any multiple choices. Essay only. Essay only. Okay, you'd like to convert? Okay, tell me about your situation. I like Judaism. Okay, great. How many kids do you, do you have? Have anybody else in your life that wants to convert? No, no, my boyfriend is Jewish. Oh, so you're converting for him? Now, if you would have told them a different way, you, you, you wouldn't have arrived at that. Or on the other hand, if they tell you, listen, uh, you have uh, the kid's situation. Um... The kid's requirement is uh, 12 years old. The kid said, yeah, yeah, it's 12 years old. It's 12 years old. He doesn't have a driver's license. How are you going to prove otherwise? But on the other hand, if I tell him, uh, yeah, I have kids. Oh, how old are they? What year were they born? When's their birthday? Caught the guy off, the, off guard. When was the last birthday? How, how many months ago was the birthday? What year were they born? Who was the president when they were born? Yeah, it depends. Again, it depends what you're dealing with. So when it comes to, sh- to a uh, conversion, you have an idea of, uh, you know, of what you're dealing with by the types of questions that they ask, by the types of questions that they answer. Same concept with a shiduch. With shiduch, if you, uh, if you ask the person, a, um, listen, I want you to meet so-and-so, 